and welcome to Office Hours, the podcast of Westminster Seminary, California, that takes you inside the seminary. I'm Scott Clark. This is a special edition of Office Hours, a panel discussion on the doctrine of Scripture, especially as Scripture is understood, upheld, and taught at Westminster Seminary, California. Joining us today are Bob Godfrey, President of Westminster Seminary, California, and Professor of Church History, Joel Kim, Assistant Professor of New Testament at Westminster Seminary, California, and John Fesco, Academic Dean and Associate Professor of Systematic Theology at Westminster Seminary, California. Hello, men, and welcome to Office Hours. Thank you. Well, we're here to talk about Scripture, and particularly how we at Westminster Seminary, California, relate to the doctrine of Scripture. So I think the first and most basic question here is why is this a significant discussion? Because for most of the history of the Christian church, you really didn't have to have a great discussion of the importance of Scripture. It was just taken for granted that Scripture is the you know, inspired, inerrant, infallible Word of God, and that's just the way things are. So why do we need to have this talk? Well, I think we're having this talk in part as part of our celebration of the 30th anniversary of Westminster Seminary, California. And in that time of celebration, we're doing some reflecting about who we are and what we hope to be for the future. And as we look both at ourselves and at the theological and educational world in which we find ourselves, we see how very important it is to reiterate and recommit ourselves to um, the doctrine of Scripture as the foundation of all that we do. And it's important to do that not only because it's critical to our work, it's defining of who we are, but because we live in a world where there is a lot of opposition to that very notion that the Scripture is the Word of God, that it's entirely truthful and trustworthy, and that it's all that we need to be going on with the preparation of uh, ministers of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So um, it's critical to reflect on that, uh, to continue to celebrate our commitment to that and to uh, inform those who have supported us and support our work that uh, that commitment remains unshaken. When did the commitment to Scripture begin to be challenged? Did it happen last week or 100 years ago, or why would it be important for this institution to stand up and say, listen, we hold the Bible to be the inerrant, infallible, inspired Word of God. I think you could go back all the way to the garden that when um, God first told Adam and Eve uh, the prohibition to not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that Satan slithered up and said, hath God said. And so you had really, in one sense, the first challenge to the doctrine of Scripture. But that's something that has been repeated throughout church history. You see that, you know, whether it's uh, Tertullian with his uh, uh, involvement with a kind of charismatic, early charismatic movement, if you wanted to call it that, uh, you have uh, the debates between the Roman Catholic Church and the Protestant Reformation in terms of the authority of Scripture uh, versus uh, uh, church tradition and the authority of Scripture and the Reformation saying that, no, it was uh, Scripture alone that is our standard. You could also uh, fast forward to uh, the Machen controversy uh, with the formation of Westminster Seminary and uh, in Philadelphia and with uh, the whole idea of Pearl Buck teaching that there is, uh, there's not necessarily a need for Christ uh, to be uh, is the only way of salvation, and, and that being a part of foreign missions and Machen and number of professors leaving that seminary. 
But then even then, you still have uh, statements. Uh, and then with the founding of Westminster Seminary, you have Machen saying that they wanted to train uh, s- uh, specialists in the Bible and that uh, the Word of God was central. But as often as all of those challenges come, you still have challenges in our own day, whether it's uh, those who claim that uh, New Testament authors uh, misquote and misunderstand uh, Old Testament statements in the Scriptures, or, for example, from the likes of somebody like Bart Ehrman, who says that the Bible is uh, full of errors and contradictions, there are always going to be challenges, uh, because I think that the doctrine of Scripture really lies at the root of uh, our knowledge of who God is, and so that's one of the places that we will constantly be attacked, and that's one of the places where we as a seminary feel that it's, it's of the utmost importance to stand and to make that one of the core elements of our curriculum here. Joel, in the 19th century particularly, there came to be, and and even before that, a series of sustained criticisms of the Bible as uh, unreliable. What were those criticisms? From where did they come, and, and what was the effect of them? I mean, I would imagine when you look at the his- history of interpretation, there are certain origins found in the Enlightenment and period after that continue to challenge some of the presuppositions that uh, Christians have had about the Word, that it's really a Word spoken by God Himself, that God is indeed truthful, that supernaturalism is part of what we believe and what Scripture teaches, and so the list can go on. But in terms of the rise of uh, critical scholarship during the 19th century, they start to focus upon certain teachings in Scripture and uh, began to undermine the teachings of Scripture, ultimately arguing that Scripture cannot be interpreted uh, as we have done in the past, but it must be done under the presuppositions that the critical scholars have at least somewhat found an agreement upon, things such as um, uh, uh, a naturalism, a certain perspective of the world that cannot sustain a belief that believes in the supernatural, right? A certain focus on historiography and the understanding of history and applying those methodologies to the study of Scripture. So at least in the area of, let's say, Pauline studies, one of the things that we see is that when they look at Scripture and they, when they reconstruct first century history, they ultimately argue that history seems to indicate that there were competing Christianities during this time period. Ultimately, a Christianity that followed Paul, Christianity that followed more of the Jewish teachings of the time, let's say Petrine Christianity. Under that construction, this dialectic really proved, or at least showed, what was going on in the first century, because there are diversity of voices, no orthodoxy to speak of. And in fact, when you go behind the teachings of historic Christianity, you realize that there are competing teachings, competing books, competing gospels that try to ultimately undermine the orthodoxy of the time. And so you see these kind of teachings coming through in our contemporary times as well. Every April around the time of Easter, Mm. we are told breathlessly that they found something else that will undermine the teaching of Christianity, especially Scripture, whether it be years back when when they talked about the Da Vinci Code and how this novel now must be challenging the Christianity of old, Uh, you know, teachings about the tombs that were found, whether archaeological or otherwise, or for that matter, different books that are written about canonicity and so on, that challenge all these things are deriving from those teachings from, let's say, 19th century on. What is the basic assumption, Bob, that the modern enlightenment, and what do we mean, by, first of all, by enlightenment? That was one of the uh, terms that Joel used. When we say enlightenment, what does that mean? Well, the enlightenment was a movement that philosophically uh, wanted to insist that at the root of things, man was the measure of all things, that our minds must be the measure of all truth, 
that uh, what we can understand is what must be true and that we are not dependent on a revelation external to ourselves coming down from above, that uh, we are not in need of such a revelation. And in fact, uh, many of the advocates of the Enlightenment said such a notion of revelation would be sort of demeaning to man, undermining the maturity of mankind and um, detrimental to who we are. And uh, so that that notion that the human mind, the human judgment, the human experience must be the measure of all things has come to dominate a great deal of um, what we tend to call secular, but even non-secular Western thinking. And um, that is applied then relative to the Bible. The Bible becomes just another book of human experience to be evaluated as what parts of it are true and helpful and which parts aren't. And uh, Fundamentally, that approach then denies that the Bible is a supernatural revelation uh, given by God and necessary for human beings to understand who they are and, and uh, what their world is all about. Is it fair to say that the, the Enlightenment was really a religious movement that posited an alternate religion to Christianity? And, and so what we've been engaged in for the last 200 years or more is really a a, a fundamentally a religious struggle about whether there is such a thing as ultimate truth and and what, what is the source of that ultimate truth. It seems to me that as I look at the 18th and 19th centuries, that the Enlightenment writers were saying that I, that there is truth and I am the measure of that. And now what I hear people saying and writing is, no, there is no ultimate truth and if there, whatever truth there is isn't out there, it's within me. So we've gone from a kind of objectivism, whether through rationalism or empiricism, to subjectivism. That in, but in both cases, uh, I am the subject of the verb. I get to decide. And so where we used to talk about truth out there that we all, all reasonable people could know, now there's just your truth, my truth, and six, you know, six billion different truths in the world. Both of those are pretty destructive of, if, if they're accepted, both of those notions are pretty destructive of any notion of a revealed truth coming to us in Scripture. Right, and I think what's made this whole discussion so difficult for so many Christians is that you're absolutely right. The Enlightenment point of view is a religious point of view, but it's a religious point of view that adamantly denies that it is a religious point of view. Mm. It's constantly insisting that it's neutral, that it's open to any truth. That uh, So they don't it, play fair. They don't play fair because they're unwilling to recognize uh, their own presuppositions, their own their own religious commitments, and uh, they claim a neutrality that they don't, in fact, embrace. What happened to the Old Testament? We, uh, Joel mentioned some things that happened to the New Testament uh, as a result or of the Enlightenment or during the Enlightenment, where the New Testament came under pretty serious scrutiny. Uh, there were gospel criticism uh, already being made in the 18th century, suggesting that parts of the Scripture were authentic, parts of the Gospels were authentic and parts were not, and, and so forth. Then that method was applied to the uh, Pauline epistles. And so today you have uh, scholars, some of whom are accepted as, you know, quote-unquote conservatives or evangelicals, denying, for example, that Paul wrote Ephesians. Uh, isn't it, I think that's fair to say that there's a fairly widespread critical uh, assumption or belief that uh, while Paul wrote Romans, and uh, uh, but we know he didn't write Ephesians. That might be a surprise to some Christians. 
what happened to Genesis, uh, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, to the Pentateuch? What what happened in the 18th and 19th centuries to those books as well? I think the application of methodology is very similar. That is, in, in supposing that this is really not divine revelation but human revelation, you have to approach the text like you would approach any other historical documents. And when you approach the historical documents, you don't suppose that there is any inspiration involved. You don't suppose uh, divine authorship in terms of him speaking. You approach it like any other documents of the time, comparing uh, linguistics, uh, comparing languages, comparing literature of the time, comparing various theological ideas prevalent during the time period, etc., where you then start selectively saying one thing belongs in this period, the other doesn't. One thing belongs to this particular author, the other doesn't. One theology belongs to this period, the other doesn't, where the interpreter himself stands over the text and starts uh, making historical arguments that ultimately decide the, the, the interpreter himself decides which one is divine and which one is not, or which one belongs to that period, and so on. So you have issues in the Pentateuch where you're distinguishing various authors, uh, uh, different individuals that might have different interests uh, supplying the information where it's a composition of multiple authors. Same thing with Isaiah or any other writings that you can think of. New Testament works the same way. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California, and we're talking talking with Bob Godfrey, Joel Kim, and John Fesco about the doctrine of Scripture, and especially as it's understood at Westminster Seminary, California. All right, so as a consequence, they saw then a Yahwehist writer, an Elohimist writer, a Deuteronomic writer, and a priestly writer, right. J-E-D and P. So you had a, what's called the documentary hypothesis mm-hmm. as a way of interpreting the Pentateuch, and they divided it up. And as you suggest, they, they knew a priori before they ever got to the text that certain things couldn't have occurred when they were supposed to have occurred, and therefore they must have been written later and and uh, and so you have a general undermining of the reliability, authority, uh, truthfulness of of Scripture. So th- this happened in the Pentateuch. It's happened in the major prophets uh, and uh, and in the New Testament. All through, virtually almost uh, every bit of the New Testament has been subjected to this kind of criticism. And as a consequence, then you really don't have, if you accept all of these quote unquote conclusions, you don't really have the same Bible at the end of it all, that we started with, let's say, in the 16th and even into the 17th century. Now, with all that as background, has the evangelical world and have evangelical educational institutions escaped from all of this criticism unscathed? Well, I think they haven't escaped, and they haven't escaped, it seems to me, on several different levels. Uh, on one level, one of the pressures that uh, conservative institutions, conservative Christian institutions constantly labor under is the, is the pressure to demonstrate academic respectability. And um, many conservative scholars want a place at the table, and they want to be they want to be respected. They want to be uh, recognized as having genuine academic credentials. Uh, one of the Bob Joneses summed this up brilliantly years ago when he said, uh, an evangelical is willing to say to a liberal, I'll call you a Christian if you call me a scholar. 
it's that uh, desire to uh, have the world's recognition and respectability, and we can't minimize the the pressure of that, the desire of that. We want to we want to show that we really are scholars, and and scholars like any other field of endeavor want to be appreciated by their by their colleagues. So that's that's one pressure. Make make minor concessions. That's always the argument. They're minor concessions. They, concessions. they don't really matter. They don't affect the substance of the faith. It gives us an opportunity to be an influence. Um, over the years, I've said we need a book on the myth of influence. Uh, <laughs> it seems to me that uh, we always set out as conservatives to be an influence, but the result is we are influenced. And um, that's that's always a pressure. The, the the other and in a lot of ways more serious um, problem that evangelicals have faced is that as we lose a measure of confidence in the scripture, as we find our sense, not only that we're not as confident that the Bible is inspired, but we're not as confident that the Bible speaks with a single voice, um, then the Bible is no longer the same kind of functioning authority that the reformers saw it as being. And um, evangelicals can easily slip into the mold where the Bible is not the all-sufficient authority for faith and life, uh, but the Bible becomes a book of inspiration, a sort of jumping-off point for religion uh, in which our creativity and our imagination still plays a huge role. And I think when you hear a lot of preaching that goes under the name of evangelical, particularly on Christian radio or Christian television, you often see that formal attachment to the Bible, which in fact is just a kind of uh, treating the Bible as poetic, poetic inspiration. John, how then did the you know the early founders of Westminster Seminary, Old Westminster, J. Gresham Machen, and the rest of the original faculty, how did they navigate between the higher critics on the one side and the fundamentalists on the other? Bob made reference to Bob Jones Sr., and while we would share some things in common with him, uh, a belief in the you know, inerrancy and inspiration of Scripture uh, as, a, as a fundamental Christian doctrine, you know, the reliability and truthfulness of Scripture— but obviously there would be ways in which, and there were ways in the 1920s and 30s where there were differences and 40s and 50s between the original Westminster faculty and the quote-unquote fundamentalists. I think the fundamentalists in general were always trying to boil the Christian faith down to a basic set of essentials. And uh, part and parcel of that was they tried to maintain a strong doctrine of Scripture. I think you see that in the uh, history of Fuller Seminary, where they started off uh, with a commitment to inerrancy, and within less than 20 years, they basically scuttled that commitment. Whereas I think that uh, one of the things that the Westminster faculty uh, in Philadelphia, and it's something that I think we carry on here at Westminster Seminary, California, is the commitment not simply to a basic subset of uh, basic Christian essentials, but rather to a full expression of the Reformed faith. And I think concomitant with that are a number of important, uh, you know, truths 
uh, for example, that are tied in with the doctrine of Scripture, but that flow through the entire seminary curriculum. For example, if we believe uh, in the inspiration of Scripture rather than it being a collection of uh, man's documents that evolved over a number of you know centuries uh, in, in, through the Old Testament and New Testament, rather it's inspired by God, then that means that we believe, for example, in the principle of perspicuity of Scripture, it's clarity that the message of salvation can be understood and therefore proclaimed. We believe in the um, uh, in the inerrancy of Scripture in terms that it is inspired by God, therefore it does not contain error. Uh, it's not merely an infallible document as much as it is an infallible fallible document, but it is even more than that. Its inspiration brings the concommitment of its uh, truthfulness. And what that means is that uh, it, it brings along the doctrine of the uh, analogy of Scripture, that where there are some portions of Scripture that cannot be understood or that are not as clear, then they can be compared with other portions of Scripture, uh, which means that uh, God has inspired the whole. Because he's inspired the whole, then it presents one coherent, consistent message. How that works out into the seminary curriculum is that for example, we don't believe that you can do systematic theology unless you've had your Greek and Hebrew, unless you've had your Old Testament and New Testament, so that you understand that fundamental point. And I think that what is happening, especially even among Reformed institutions these days, is that in at the beginning of the Reformation, you had people who were unable to understand the Scriptures in the original languages because of a lack of training or because of uh, the authorities in place did not want to give them the scriptures. Now that we fought with uh, a lot of theological argumentation, shed blood and hard work, uh, that we have the scriptures in the original languages, you have institutions that are now saying that Greek and Hebrew are no longer required and that you can get your seminary education without that. And I think that in many respects it's almost kind of going back to let's just get down to the basic essentials and I think that that leads in a very dangerous direction. And so I, I think that if the scriptures are going to be at the core of your um, seminary curriculum as it is here, well, then it's something that you have to be completely committed to so that it permeates the entire uh, seminary curriculum and not just simply one part where you go to learn one thing and then you learn another and they're kind of completely separate. One of the things that I have sometimes thought about is distinguishing between, say, the liberals on the one side and the fundamentalists on the other, and then we'll say confessionalists in the middle, is the willingness, uh, Joel, of confessionalists to actually engage the difficult questions and, and not shy away from them. One of the things that Machen said repeatedly uh, was, we are not obscurantists. We don't stick our head in the sand and, and refuse to face the tough questions by simply saying, well, those are bad guys out there, bad people who are raising these questions, and we'll just call them bad and we won't face them. For example, you mentioned that the higher critics wanted to read Scripture as if it were literature in its own context and reading it comparatively with, with contemporary uh, texts from the same period. Now, that's not a bad thing. I mean, we believe in that. We believe in reading the New Testament in its original context, reading the Hebrew Scriptures, the Aramaic Scriptures in their original context and coming to an understanding of them. So how would we be different from the liberals who are doing that. I think ultimately it's a question of what has the governing authority in terms of determining what is true or not. In that sense, a lot of the liberal scholarship allow the contextual evidence or historical circumstances to be the determining factor that judges the word in terms of what is true or not true, whether it be an issue of interpreting Genesis 
interpreting uh, the New Testament in terms of historical factors. It allows the, the, the critical scholarship as well as circumstantial evidence to stand over the word in terms of judging what is true. While engaging uh, this historical study as well as critical scholarship, I think what we are trying to do is to say the word itself is finally authoritative. That in, indeed, if there is a contradiction and problem, it's the word that must speak as the ultimate authority of what is true or not true. Now, we see this even in Ned Stonehouse when he introduces his book on Matthew and Mark and other Gospels, where he tries to say simply that uh, we do not hide from the critical scholarship. And he learned that from Machen as well. Machen learned from the best of his period, going to Germany and being taught by the best of that time period, and in some sense, mesmerized by some of the teachings that they provided. Yeah, Wilhelm Hermann. Well, I mean, very he, much so. Yeah. And, but engaged in the sense that he knows what they're saying, he's critical of what they're saying, and, and he appropriates, appropriates uh, what he thinks should be understood from the text. But ultimate judge is the word not other factors that determine the word. Bob, you were present and active during the inerrancy debates in the 1970s. And some young scholars and even seminary students and pastors perhaps may say, and I've heard people say, well, you know, that was then. That was the discussion back then. And the, the, the discussion has moved on. We're not having that discussion anymore. And that, whenever I hear that, that's always made me a little nervous. Maybe I'm giving away my age. But what was the significance of the inerrancy debate in the 1970s? And particularly, what, what significance is there for us now? Well, I, I think the, the debate uh, in the 70s is illuminating in the sense that uh, the basic issues of that time I don't think changed that much from, from generation to generation. And the basic issue then was, um, is the doctrine of inerrancy a useful, important, perhaps necessary way of talking about the absolute truthfulness and reliability of all the Scripture? Or can one grant, as uh, increasingly was being voiced in evangelical circles, can one grant some factual errors in the Bible without bringing down the whole edifice of biblical authority? And um, the critics of inerrancy in the 70s, and it seems to me those criticisms are exactly the same today as I'm hearing them, uh, would say, well, inerrancy is a kind of rationalistic construct. It's not what the church historically believed. It's not what the Bible itself uh, teaches. And therefore, uh, it's an effort to uh, build a defense of the doctrine of Scripture that is unnecessarily complicated and necessarily obscurantist, necessarily out of touch with real scholarship. And the um, International Council on Biblical Inerrancy that was formed by some of the leading Reformed and Evangelical and Lutheran scholars in America in the 1970s set out to show that that criticism of inerrancy was untrue. There was nothing inherently anti-intellectual anti-academic about the doctrine of inerrancy. Um, it set out to show that it actually expressed very helpfully what the Bible itself teaches about its own authority and reliability, and that inerrancy is a helpful way of um, speaking about the complete truthfulness and reliability of the Scriptures. And I remember, I th I'm pretty sure it was J.I. Packer gave an address on inerrancy as a shibboleth. And we remember the function of the shibboleth in the Old Testament, namely to see who is the true Israelite and who wasn't as to whether they w could say the word correctly or not. And um, 
I, I still think it's useful to, to pause with those who have trouble with inerrancy and, and press them. Why do they have trouble? Uh, now, some are honest and, and are just a little troubled by a word they don't really understand. But most of the time, in my experience, those who do understand inerrancy and reject it don't have a very reliable doctrine of the Scriptures. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. When we come back, we're going to talk about where the discussion is now on the doctrine of Scripture and how that affects the preparation of pastors. In the 17th century, John Bunyan gave us the character, Mr. Valiant for Truth. In the 20th century, God gave us another Mr. Valiant for Truth, J. Gresham Machen, the founder of Westminster Seminary. The spirit of Machen lives on at Westminster Seminary, California, where, for 30 years, we've been fulfilling his vision of training men for ministry and preparing them to be expert in the Bible. WSCAL.edu, 888-480-8474, Westminster Seminary, California, for Christ, His Gospel, and His Church. Where are we now? What's happening in the broader evangelical world? Certainly, as Bob suggested, there are people who've said, well, listen, the inerrantists were wrong. And some of them have even suggested that the inerrantists are dishonest because uh, they haven't really faced the tough questions. I think you mentioned or someone mentioned that uh, one of the criticisms is that we're not really getting to grips. We who still believe in inerrancy aren't really getting to grips with, for example, the way the New Testament, as they suggest, abuses the Old Testament. How, can you give us an account of that? Yes, this is one of the things I think that has been at least personally disconcerting to me uh, in watching the last few years uh, in that in the past, you at least I would tend to think that, well, we've had the inerrancy debate in the late 70s and maybe early 80s, and we've put that to rest, and so you know that should be done and we shouldn't revisit the issue. But I guess that was naive on my part in that, of course, we see it resurfacing. But I think what is particularly disconcerting is not so much of what is in the broader church, but what's surfaced within the Reformed Church itself. Uh, in that, for example, in the broader church, you have uh, N.T. Wright, who uh, wrote his book called The Last Word, at least that was the American title, where he said that uh, the Scripture is like a play of Shakespeare with five acts, but that only four of them have been written, and that the church writes the fifth act in the spirit of the previous four. Mm. Uh, and I can't help but think that this is supposedly the Bible's, uh, what the way the Bible teaches um, its authority, and it... He's unshackled it, of course, in his mind from the doctrine of inerrancy, because, again, I'm making that accusation that it's um, rationalistic. It sounds like a lot to me is let's um, uh, write a Bible of our own and whatever comports with our uh, desires, uh, rather than submitting the church submitting itself to the authority of God. You have another book uh, the um, by uh, Andrew McGowan on the uh, divine spiration of Scripture, where, again, he's within the Reformed community, but he makes the case that uh, inerrancy is uh, rationalistic and supposedly on a on a um, historical basis, what, you have. What I'm does sorry. that mean, rationalistic? Why, why would people 
people say that it's rationalistic. I think that you, what happens is they get this idea that the reformers were these uh, pristine theologians and then this horde of uh, post-Reformation theologians, Francis Turret and John Owen and the like, came in and they would make the argument that we can prove that the Word of God is the Word of God simply because uh, it says so and we can prove it by these various facts and that we can you know, prove it with the powers of reason. Um, and so they pit uh, Reformation theologians against post-Reformation theologians. And what kills me about this is that if you compare what they all have to say, Reformation, post-Reformation, they all say that the only way that we know that the Scripture is the inspired Word of God ultimately is by the convicting power of the Holy Spirit and the Spirit speaking in Scripture. And that's a phrase that you get from the Westminster Confession. Uh, but... Um, if you really wanted to count noses or at least count evidence, what's funny is that Calvin is perhaps the one that goes into the greatest detail talking about the proofs of the divinity of Scripture and talks about them at greater length, arguably, than any other theologian, but of course still maintains the whole idea that, uh, no, it's ultimately the Holy Spirit that convicts us of the inspiration and authority of Scripture. And so that's what you get these cases that, hey, um, you have, uh, you know, again, Andrew McGowan arguing it's it's rationalism. No, it's not. It's it's part and parcel of uh, of a solid, robust doctrine of Scripture. You also have um, Pete Enns's book, uh, Inspiration and Incarnation, which I find it interesting, and I'm not sure if he made this on purpose, but Warfield's book, Inspiration and uh, Authority, uh, and um, or Inspiration and Inerrancy, I think. And then the uh, his book is Inspiration and Incarnation, arguing that um, the New Testament authors misquoted the Old Testament. Uh, and those are opinions coming from within uh, the Reformed community, and that is what is disconcerting, and that's why I think that it is ultimately key uh, that that uh, this generation understand the importance of the doctrine of inerrancy. One of the figures who comes up in this discussion a lot is B.B. Warfield, and I have read scholars who I think should know better say that Warfield invented the doctrine of inerrancy, and this view seems to be fairly widely accepted and it's always puzzled me because as I read Warfield and, and as I read the older Christian writers, that doesn't seem to me to be evidently so. Warfield, it seems to me, wasn't conscious of having invented the doctrine of inerrancy. So how, how would you respond to that, Bob? Well, I think we do have to recognize that Warfield lived in a different historical moment than the moment, say, in which John Calvin lived. Uh, in, in Calvin's day— all Christians accepted the notion that the Bible was the inspired, revealed Word of God and utterly true and reliable. It, it wasn't a, a controversial point. And so Calvin was not in a position of needing to answer a huge body of scholarship constantly attacking the reliability of the Scriptures. Uh, nonetheless, as John pointed out, uh, Calvin does devote a chapter to showing the um, or discussing what he regards as proofs of the um, inspiration, reliability of the Scripture. That chapter follows this chapter on how we know the Bible is the Word of God from the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. But Calvin did not believe at all that a commitment to the authority of Scripture was intellectual suicide. True, we are, as sinful people, dependent on the work of the Holy Spirit to recognize the voice of our Father in Scripture— but um, that's not an irrational commitment. There's plenty of evidence to support that conviction. Well, by Warfield's day, there was a huge body of uh, 
critical scholarship that attacked the authority of Scripture and suggested that it could demonstrate uh, how the Bible had any number of errors of, of greater and lesser magnitude within it. So part of what Warfield sets out to do is to answer the charge that there are errors. Well, how do you answer a charge that there's errors? You have to sort of go charge by charge. So Warfield does a fair bit of that, showing that the uh, suggestions of error cannot be substantiated. And when he gets done with that marvelous scholarly work, then he's accused of being a rationalist because he's piled up all these evidences. Well, you sort of can't have it both ways. You can't say there is all this evidence of error, and then if someone responds to that evidence, say, well, you're being awfully rationalistic. Uh, So Warfield gets it, I think, quite unfairly. No, he's Uh, condemned if he does, and he's condemned if he doesn't. Exactly. I I was just, before we sat down to have this conversation, giving a lecture, uh, part of which uh, was describing uh, Thomas Munzer's doctrine of Scripture. And it's very interesting that, you know, well before the modern critical period, Munzer argued against the Reformed and against the Lutherans that the Bible itself is a dead letter. He appealed to 2 Corinthians 3.6. He quoted Scripture to prove that, that the Bible isn't what the Reformed and the Lutherans were saying that it was. And he said, you then are ministers of the dead letter. He was arguing for continuing revelation. So the the kind of theology, piety, and practice that we call Pentecostalism today actually has its roots in the 16th century Anabaptist movement. But, But further, he said, the Bible is a witness to the Word of God. Now, I every time I see that, when I get to that material in my lectures, I always stop and remark that that's an amazing thing to read in a 16th century document. And the Reformed, particularly we were looking at uh, Guy Debray, the primary author of the Belgian Confession, who's responding to this. But as we read that language, when I say that, obviously, uh, for all of us who live on this end of the 20th century, when I say that the, that the Bible is merely a witness to the Word of God, that brings to mind Carl Bart. Bart. Carl Bart. It's almost, you know— Exactly what Bart said, and and yet for many people, Bart is the paradigm for what it is to be reformed. And I was arguing, and one of our grads just finished his doctoral research in which he's argued that Carl Bart, in fact, in in some ways, is not reformed, but in fact, was an Anabaptist. What effect has Bart had on the modern discussion of the doctrine of Scripture, and how do we approach that here at Westminster Seminary, California? I think that uh, we can say that uh, whatever credibility evangelicals or even Reformed were hoping to get was the kind of credibility that Karl Barth very quickly established, and I suspect he uh, was able to do so because, he, granted, he did it in a very high scholarly kind of way, but uh, the the critic or the skeptic always seems to get uh, respect and, and accolades a lot more quickly than the one who is trying to defend. And so I think because Bart was turning on so many key principles of Reformed theology, but all doing so in the name of Reformed theology, and even to a certain extent with uh, a lot of at least apparently primary source kind of evidence from the Reformation and post-Reformation period, I think he gained a lot of credibility, and I think he gained a lot of credibility to the unbelieving world even. I mean, when you make the cover of Time magazine, there's a sense in which you can say, well, theologically, at least vis-a-vis the respect of the world, I have arrived. Uh, And so I think for those reasons, he became something of a benchmark uh, for a lot of 
a lot of uh, Reformed uh, theologians or even evangelical scholars, and I think the problem is is that uh, they didn't double-check his work, and uh, what's been discovered, I think partially by uh, uh, reference to Ryan Glomsrud's uh, doctoral work, is that um, Bart was just using quotations rather than actually digging down to the primary sources, and it's only been with the work of the likes of, say, Richard Muller, who's done all of the primary source digging up to say, no, there was continuity between the Reformation and the post-Reformation periods. And so, uh, yeah, I, I think that that's how Bart gets set up as this, uh, I don't know how else to describe him other than the 800-pound gorilla in the room, and it's only been recently now that we've got the historical information that has been uncovered to, to refute that and to challenge him. Joel, let me ask you a, a tough question directly. The New Testament makes what might be called creative use of the Old Testament. Does the New Testament abuse the Old Testament? Scott, if I can, I'll get to it, but if I can take a detour quickly and comment on what Bob mentioned during the break, which I think is very appropriate, that indeed a lot of the churches and and seminaries and and books really challenge some of the minor details of the Word, which I think rock the world in terms of many of the laity, in terms of reading the Word and their confidence in the Word. And this particular issue you're bringing up happens to be one of those issues. And we've seen a lot of these discussions, whether it be the issue of transmission of the text. Misquoting Jesus is about a book about textual transmission, yet it becomes a national bestseller, and everybody's talking about it. Which is amazing, by the way. I mean, a a book on textual criticism, you would would think, how could you sell those? Right. I mean, it's become a social phenomena where it shows up on TV and talk shows or discussions of canonicity, you know, the question of seemingly a very simple question of do we have the right books? which initially sounds innocuous, except for the fact that when you actually get into it and when you bring in history, a lot of people are challenged by, uh, by those things. And they defer uh, to the uh, scholarship going on right now saying that these are things that will ultimately challenge what we believe in. Well, the question you're asking is something that's been around for 30 or 40 years that ultimately argues that the New Testament authors distort Uh, the teachings of the Old Testament. Now, these are not coming from individuals who do not believe uh, in the New Testament or the teachings found within. These are people who argue that uh, Paul was an important figure who interpreted Jesus correctly and that we have an obligation to follow what what he's taught. But many argue that somehow Paul and others, in reading the Old Testament, read it wrongly, but they applied it correctly. And so there are certain assumptions in terms of this argument. They argue that somehow that Paul and others were basically using the interpretive methodology of their time period. This is to point out that these individuals are not unique and that New Testament is not unique. It should be read and considered like any other uh, text of its time period. It also assumes that when the New Testament authors, therefore, applied these methodologies that were existing during their time period, when they applied it to the text found in the Old Testament, they misunderstood it. Because the assumption here is that grammatical historical method, as currently applied, is the right method. Obviously, the first century writers of the New Testament didn't understand that method. So when they looked in the Old Testament and found things in the Old Testament, they misinterpreted it. But the conclusion for many of the evangelical scholars in this regard is that they believe, however, despite the fact that they misinterpret the Old Testament, their conclusion is right. 
and that we have to believe it. But that's a matter not of correct exegesis, but that's a matter of inspiration. Isn't it tantamount to saying that uh, the the writers of the New Testament may have been carried along by the Spirit in some way, but they weren't very clever, but nevertheless they used a bad method and got to the right end, and all we're really obligated to is where they ended up, not how they got there. I think the book that was written to discuss this issue was called The Right Doctrine from the Wrong Texts, saying that they got the conclusion right, but in terms of how they got there, they misunderstood what the Old Testament was saying. So when Matthew says... And, and applies the Old Testament to Jesus in Matthew 2, for example, out of Egypt have I called my son. I think we want to say with Ned Stonehouse that under the inspiration of the Spirit, Matthew is not only a, a historian, but he's also a theologian. And he's using a very, I guess, sophisticated way, nuanced way of reading Holy Scripture and saying this is the true understanding of Hebrew Scripture, of the history of redemption, and Jesus is the Israel of God. So aren't we left with a choice? Either you believe that Matthew interpreted Scripture correctly under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and, by the way, gave us a witness as to how we ought to read Scripture, or or you don't really. So either you're submitting to Matthew's hermeneutic and Paul's hermeneutic. I'm thinking of Second Corinthians 1, you know, that all the promises are yes, yes and amen in Christ, or Luke 24, where Jesus showed them how that all Scripture points to him, or John eight fifty six, Abraham saw my day and rejoiced. I mean, don't you see really a pretty consistent hermeneutic? Oh, at least what we're trying to argue is that not only did they get the doctrine right under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, they got the method right. And this has huge implications for how we preach the Word as well. Uh, when we approach the Word and when we understand the Old Testament, apply the Old Testament to the current church, uh, how do we go about doing it? If it's really a matter of illumination, I mean, I'm sorry, inspiration, not illumination, that the, the New Testament authors themselves, while getting the answer right, they apply the wrong methodology, then we really have no hope. We really are dependent on what we consider to be the right way to do so. But I guess what we're trying to teach the students here and what we believe is that the authors themselves in the New Testament got the answer right and the method right, and that what we try to still in the students is to uh, preach and interpret the Bible as the apostles did, because we do believe that they have it right, both the answer and the methods. Bob, how do then we recover Scripture, not just the, maybe the conclusions and not just the parts of Scripture that we like, but the whole counsel of God? How, how do we get back to that in, in light of all that has happened in the modern period? Well, I think that we have to... Um at the same time that we as an academic institution seek to engage in the scholarly dialogue of our day in as thorough and informed and responsible a way as we can, we also, I think, have to impress upon our students that scholarly issues on some level are fads that come and go. And that while it is important that we don't ignore those scholarly fads, that we don't give them ultimate authority either. That theological education ideally is not just for today and about the debates of today, but theological education needs to be preparing future ministers for a lifetime of service. And the way you do that is through confidence in the Word of God and 
allowing the Word of God to speak on its own. That's why this issue of the quotations of the Old Testament and the New Testament is an important issue. Did the writers of the New Testament understand the Old Testament correctly or not? If they didn't, then how do we really have confidence that they understood anything much about religion? The, The bottom line, it seems to me, is that a lot of evangelical scholars and a lot of New Orthodox scholars following Bart don't really understand the Old Testament, don't understand how it's put together, and therefore don't understand why the quotations from the New Testament are really quite appropriate. What has impressed me as a non-specialist in this area is when you go back and read the context of quotations, uh, the context in the Old Testament, the broader context, it's amazing how appropriate and illuminating the New Testament quotations suddenly become. If you read Matthew, out of Egypt I have called my son from Hosea, in context in Hosea, you do discover that that exact verse, out of Egypt I have called my son, does seem to apply to God's original calling of of Israel out of Egypt. And if that's all you read, you could say, well, Matthew misused that text. But if you read that text in the chapter of Hosea from which it's quoted, it's clear Hosea is, is saying, in effect, I once called my son out of Egypt, and I will call my son out of Egypt again. It's a perfectly appropriate quotation. Again, we were talking about Bart earlier and, and his massive influence, in part because of his massive intellect, but in part because of the moment at which he came along. He came along when the old optimistic liberalism was discredited by World War I and its devastations, and the whole theological world was looking for a more pessimistic voice, which Karl Barth uh, provided. And because Barth was critical of the old liberal optimism and seemed to return to a somewhat more biblical realism, lots of evangelicals immediately embraced Barth and said, he's a critic of liberals, he's one of us. Well, who was, wh- what was one of the few voices raised against Bart that was a well-informed, thoughtful voice. It was Cornelius Van Til from Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia who said, wait a minute, Uh, Bart appropriately criticizes aspects of liberalism, but he has not broken with liberalism's fundamental understanding of Scripture. Van Til was ridiculed by all sorts of uh, evangelicals in his own day, but times proved him right, I think, that uh, Bartianism was not a stable reliable foundation from which to criticize liberalism because it didn't get the doctrine of Scripture right. Are those denominations, thinking of the mainline denominations, particularly the PCUSA, uh, maybe the RCA, and and those that may be in the process of of presently embracing some of those approaches to Scripture, are they better off? Are they more faithful? Uh, Is the word being preached with more clarity, more fidelity today than it was, let's say, in 1930 and 40, when Americans really began to read Bart thoroughly and, and carefully. And I can't imagine that someone could argue from a historical point of view or a confessional point of view or even a biblical point of view that those who have adopted Bart's approach to Scripture are better off now. You know, to use Ronald Reagan's question, are you better off now than you were four years ago? You know, are you better off now than you were 100 years ago? It, I can't imagine someone could argue the case that, yes, we are. Uh, Scott, if I could just chip in and just say one thing that I think this is, I don't know, I just want to call a spade a spade and say that fundamentally I think it's unbelief. 
when you challenge the doctrine of Scripture and say things like New Testament authors misquote the Old Testament or that uh, that it can't mean actually what it says, well, it's fundamentally unbelief. And I think that if you start with a presupposition of unbelief, you're going to go—it's not going to get any better from there. Well, can't is a powerful word. I mean, th- that always strikes me. You know, we all know. I always challenge the students. Whenever someone says, we all know, uh, you know, your ears should perk up and you, you should pay attention. W- what about what's about to come next is very, very important. What do we all know? Well, if we all know that Paul couldn't have done this, that this would have constituted a bad use of a text. Excuse me? Uh, I how. Explain to me again how this works, and you're going to tell the Apostle Paul what he can and can't do? And then let's go to the other apostles who, you know, the Apostle Peter. You're going to judge the Apostle Peter and his use of Scripture? That's uh, that's always struck me as having a certain degree of hubris, I well, guess. Here's the thing that I would say at this point, is this is what kills me and it cracks me up, is that we are accused— of rationalism because we affirm the inerrancy of Scripture. But I think really where the rationalistic uh, and the rationalism accusation rightly falls is upon the historical critics because what they're in effect saying is that it is rationally impossible that the Holy Spirit could have inspired this and that God could have inspired this. Uh, And the only way that I can get across Lessing's ugly ditch, this idea that how can I bridge 2,000 years of history, is by historically reconstructing and deciding what is and what is not a part of Scripture. And they fundamentally do not allow for the inspiration and the uh, illumination of the Holy Spirit. So to say that something is totally an absolutely impossible, reeks of rationalism, because what it says is, nope, if it doesn't square with my ability to understand these things, then it can't be. Uh, so you know, which is the definition of rationalism? Exactly. Right? So, what doesn't fit my net is not a butterfly. Right. And that—that's the classic definition of rationalism. Right. So I never knew that. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it had something to do with the mind. I had nothing. To, no idea it had to do with butterfly catching. Well, you just need to get out of your office a little more and <laughs> obviously and see how the world works. So, uh, so let's close. See how the butters fly. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Let's. Uh, conclude our discussion. It's uh, about time. And bring it to a focus. <laughs> what does it mean then for a faculty member at Westminster Seminary, California, to to say, to sign the Reformed Confessions that we, we do? We actually sign a piece of paper, as I, if I recall correctly, standing you know before the board of trustees and saying, we believe what these documents confess about the Word of God, and we believe the Word of God to be the inspired, inerrant, infallible Word of God. What, what does that mean for all of our faculty to do that, Bob? In the first place, it means that each of us individually, as faculty members, takes on the responsibility to labor under the Word of God, recognizing the absolute authority and reliability of the Word of God, and seeking to the best of our abilities, therefore, to teach the Word of God as it comes to us, not to reinvent it. Uh, And as important as that is for each of us individually, I think it's even more important for us communally so that students who come here to study can have confidence that not only each professor individually, but all of us together are committed to this enterprise. And I would say that... uh, Uh, This is one of the most critical issues before the church, uh, to have an educated, well-educated ministry that has confidence in the Word of God and therefore preaches the Word of God to the people of God. That's where 
the health and life of the church is going to come from. Now, of course, that has to be accompanied by the work of the Holy Spirit. If the Holy Spirit doesn't open our mouths to teach and doesn't open hearts and ears to receive that teaching, the purest of teaching will not bear fruit. But that's where the Spirit will above all work, where the Word is believed and taught faithfully, and that's the great enterprise we're engaged in here. We have been for 30 years, and our our hope, our planning, our prayer is that we will continue uh, faithfully to do that for decades and if the Lord tarries centuries to come. That's it for this edition of Office Hours. Thanks to our producer, Robert Riccio, to Katie Wagonmaker in the bookstore, to Young Me for graphics, and to Adam Klaus for technical assistance. We'll be back next time for another episode. You can listen to Office Hours online at wscal.edu slash officehours or subscribe and download it to your iPod or MP3 player. Go to wscal.edu slash officehours. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. For more information about this program or about Westminster Seminary, California, please visit us online or call us at 888-480-8474. Copyright 2010, Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved. You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format, provided that you do not alter the wording in any way and that you do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to our website is preferred.